This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Rebecca Larson. I'm Rebecca Larson, host of the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast and owner of TudorsDynasty.com. Telling the stories of those who lived centuries before us is what I enjoy doing most. Whether it be a show on one subject or an interview with an author or historian, I'll bring you the tales of 16th century England. Nicola Cornick is an international best-selling author and award-winning historical novelist who has written more than 30 books. In this episode, Nicola and I chat about Henry VIII and his wives, as well as the subject of two of her Tudor-era books, Little Mary Seymour and Amy Robsert. It was quite fun to get to know Nicola better, and I realized how much we have in common. I hope you enjoy the show. But before I get started today, I need to take a minute to thank the folks who became new patrons since the last episode, Monica and Nancy P. Thank you so much for your support. Your support and the support of all of my patrons has meant the world to me. A full list of patrons can be found at TudorsDynastyPodcast.com. And with that, Nicola, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here with you. One of the things I want to start out with is to find out um, why you think people are so drawn to the Tudor dynasty. Yes, it's fascinating, isn't it? And of course, at the moment, we're seeing it such a lot with the release of Hilary Mantel's new book, um, the, the the Wolf Hall trilogy. So, uh, and each time a book comes out, there's an upsurge in, in interest. And I think people are just absolutely fascinated by the Tudors. And this is something that's interested me for, for years, really, why, why it has this appeal. Um, yes, I think, well, firstly, of course, it's very theatrical, isn't it? I think it Tudor history. Um, there's a lot of personal dramas going on, and I think we can we can either relate to those or we are interested in those in, in a kind of in a in a curious way as to the way that the characters live their lives. Uh, they're big characters with with big identities. The the kings and queens of the of the Tudor era as well. Um, and, well, th- th- there's lots of things within that, I think. I mean, you can't get a bigger personality, really, than Henry VIII, can you? So th- I think that draws people in and absolutely fascinates them. I always like to associate the Tudor dynasty with um, American soap operas. I'm sure you have them there as well, where it's oh, just yes. <laughs> it's the drama that brings you in and you can't stop watching them. Absolutely. And I think the really interesting thing about that is that no matter the fact that it was hundreds of years ago, um, there are human issues and human emotions there that we can all relate to. So uh, maybe not six six spouses or marriages or whatever, but, you know, relationship difficulties, um, all, all kinds of stuff. It's all about the interaction between, between the characters. There's a definite, I think, a, a kind of celebrity element to the Tudors as, as well, or it feels as though they have become historical celebrities. Uh, uh, yeah, and I, think, and I think people are just fascinated by their lives. So I'm curious, Henry VIII, do you love him or hate him? Oh, that's such a difficult question. I can't say I love him um, because 
I think I think I admire him. I admire what he achieved um, because I think in so many ways, one of the dangers, of course, of of concentrating solely on somebody's personal life or their character, which happens a lot with Henry and his relationship is, with his wives, is that you then can overlook some of the great great achievements of a particular age, uh, and it gets eclipsed by by the more personal stuff. But I think um, Henry was an extraordinary man. I mean, so um, so interested in, in in music and in literature and there's all that sort of flowering of culture during his reign as well as um, great change progress during the, the, the Tudor period so uh, it, I, I wouldn't ever say that I loved him I think I my very first my very first historical love was Anne Boleyn so that anybody who who uh, treated her pretty badly. It was never going to be popular with me. Uh, and I've never been able to shake that off in, in all the years since, you know, since I was a since I was a child and just thought she was an amazing heroine. So that's probably coloured my, my view of Henry slightly. But I think uh, being older and wiser now, hopefully I can I can see I can see him for his achievements uh, as well as as well as the downside, perhaps, to his character. Would you agree that at the beginning of his reign that Henry really wanted to be liked? Yes, I mean that's very that's interesting. Um, I haven't. That's a really interesting question because he hadn't he hadn't always sort of struck me as somebody who wanted uh, to please people or somebody who wanted to be liked. But actually, I think there may be an element of that in there. Um, it's very hard to tell, isn't it, when you look at, at somebody's character? I mean, it's easy to look at Henry and think. Um, Actually, he was just a bit of a megalomaniac, and he didn't care what people thought about him. And maybe he did become more like that as he as he as he got older. But nobody is, of course, that that sort of. Uh, th there's nobody who who's probably that that clear one way or another. I mean, he was so likable, really, when he was when he first inherited the throne, wasn't he? He was he was the great hope for the future, and such a, a very popular and a likable prince and, and a likable character. Uh, so I'm sure that there was an element. Element of, of, of that there. He was popular and he enjoyed that. When do you think the turning point was? Or do you think there was a turning point where people liked him less? Mm. It, it would be really interesting to be able to go back and judge that actually at the time. And I think with the benefit of hindsight, we can't we can say, oh, this was the point where it all started to go wrong, or you know, this was the point where he stopped pe people stopped he stopped caring about what people's good opinion and all he was focused on was continuing the dynasty and having a son and this kind of thing. But I'm not sure at the time that was at all how it was, uh, particularly with people's attitudes towards the monarchy at the time and how far removed that was from everybody's um, mm -hmm. everybody's real life. It's kind of, it, it's, it's fascinating to think, you know, we're probably looking at it very differently now. And at, at the time, um, you know, I mean, he was a, he was a very popular monarch, wasn't he? Right through until I suppose he put aside Catherine, um, and that did cause some um, disquiet within within the country, certainly. Um, but um, but but yes, I, I I mean I think, oh, gosh, I could chat about Henry for such a long time. I, mean, <laughs> I think he's he's such a complex and such an interesting character um, that uh, even if you don't like him very much, you can't help but be completely riveted by by what an interesting person he was. I'm a fan of Henry in the respect of um, I feel like, you know, obviously I'm not English, but from what I've read, it seems like he did a lot 
for the country with, you know, growing the Navy and building more castles and, you know, maybe maybe it was the whole turning on Catherine of Aragon that started to change the prospect. But you're right, as with our modern eyes, it's hard for us to judge properly. Yes, I mean I think that, that that's absolutely right. I mean he was a it was he was a great builder. Um, he he was doing all kinds of things as I as I say that kind of get eclipsed by the by the the the, the human elements of the story. Um, and I mean I love the fact that he encouraged music at his court and that he was so musical himself and he wrote his own music. All all the sort of the flowering of that kind of culture and 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 all that sort of thing that was going on. So yes. There's, there's a lot there's a lot to admire there um but um yes i mean maybe people then also related to the human element of the story as well and were really shocked and horrified that after so many years of marriage that he decided to do this although of course on the other hand it was so incredibly important then um particularly for a young dynasty like like the the tudors were to ensure that continuation that i'm sure there would have equally have been people who who would have thought well you know we totally understand his his need to have a, a son and a, a, at least one, preferably a spare as well, to to succeed him because that was so crucial. When you think about all the um, the, the upheavals of the Wars of the Roses that had been taking place less than a century before, and so much of that hung on either having a very young uh, heir or or a king losing or losing their heir. And and so th- there was so much uncertainty around that. And, of course, the Tudors were only really at that point where they were establishing themselves strongly and they wanted that to go forward. So actually, in in one sense, have, have some sympathy for the way that he behaved in terms of trying to establish his dynasty. I just don't really uh, admire the way that, that he did it. But with modern eyes, I don't think we could possibly, we could possibly appreciate that kind of ruthlessness. Yeah, the one thing we always have to remember is that these people, while we call them characters, they were real people with real yes. feelings and emotions. And yeah, yeah, I love Absolutely. that. Absolutely, yes. I mean, this this is it. That, and of course, that is one of the issues that tends to happen when you have so much fiction about a particular era or a particular person you do start to think of them as as a character because in the sense that people sometimes say oh well so and so such a character but but you're right you're absolutely absolutely right these were their real lives that they were living and very very complex emotions the play of 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 politics as well at, at a time that's really quite distant from our own so trying to understand all of that that mixture i think it is it, it makes it a very very complex sort of setup really but again a totally fascinating one i think we're all we're all drawn in by 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 those stories aren't we uh most definitely i think it's his his reign the tragedies that happen within his reign that draws to them you're you're definitely right this leads me to my next question um if you could ask henry any question what would it be oh gosh um, <laughs> um 
Yes, I, I mean, I think I would come back to the. Uh, I mean, there's an awful lot of things I should ask him. Um, like, um, oh, I once went to one of the to Carlshot Castle, which was one of the ones that he built, which was a beautiful little place. Uh, and I'd love to ask him sort of technical questions about: Did you design place? Did you have an input into designing places like this yourself? Uh, because I know he was so interested in in that kind of thing. But you know, that would all have to go to one side, and I would just have to say how. How far would you have gone? How far would you go to have a male heir and um, just to see what he would say to that? Um, because uh, you know, I mean, he went to, he went a long way, didn't he? But um, I'd just love to be able to get a hand on on how important that was in terms of would he have done anything to have had to know that he had a son to succeed him. <laughs> So speaking of children, his wives um, are another reason why people are so intrigued by his reign. Out of curiosity, would you say that the loss of his mother at such a young age attributed to him having six wives? I mean, was he looking for that perfect wife, the woman who was like his mother, do you think? That's a great theory, isn't it? Um, I don't know. I mean... Again, I think that's very plausible. Actually, I think there. I'm, I'm not. A, I'm not a psychologist, so I, I'm. I although obviously the more that you study character and the more interested you are as, in people as a as an author, the kind of the more interest, interested in that you become. But um, yes, I mean, I think there's there probably is uh, definitely there is some element of uh, of, of truth in that. Um, and of course, he did grow up surrounded uh, in a household of women, and as you say, with a, a sort of that that ideal wife and mother image there um but it's interesting isn't it then when you look at his wives they were actually all very different uh, in, in in lots of different ways so again i'm not sure whether in the end it, it was just that uh, single-minded uh, pursuit of continuing uh, the, the 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 Tudor dynasty, the family name that would uh, that was driving him, or or I think probably that the perfect wife. Actually, having said that, I've now talked myself out of that because I'm thinking of Jane Seymour, who of course did become, in his memory, it would appear as well as uh, in that of other people, that kind of en encapsulated that ideal of the perfect wife for him, and who afterwards he spoke of so sort of. So lovingly, uh, having lost her, of course, that even that added even more to her perfection in a way, because she was crystallised as that perfect wife who gave him the son as well. So yes, I think that's absolutely right. You just made a great point because I was going to ask, you know, which of his wives you think was the most like his mother, and I think you're onto something there with Jane that maybe she was the one that was most like. Uh, yes, I mean, well, maybe, I don't know, possibly Catherine of Aragon in the beginning, perhaps, I think their relationship might have reflected his view of, what, of, of um, again, of, of what a perfect wife would be like. But there's something about that whole idea of, of Jane, um, who I'm sure, again, it's so difficult, isn't it? Because the way that we know these people, the way they've been interpreted and we know them now, the, uh, 
you know, the idea of Jane being quite a an obliging, sort of biddable kind of a wife who not only provides the uh, the longed for heir, but is also so sort of um, an amenable character. Um, I'm sure she must have been much more complicated than that. But that then becomes crystallised when she dies, so that um, you know, no one's at, never, no one else is probably ever going to live up to that anyway. Um, and of course, in Henry's mind, I'm sure she then that she's up there on the pedestal along with the idea of his mother so who is your favorite of the six wives well it always it has to be Amberlynn, doesn't it i mean, <laughs> I, I mean i've got i i i was actually that was the how i came to my interest in the tudors uh, was through reading about the wives because first uh, my grandmother got me interested in in um, reading historical fiction and i had she had the set of gold books about Henry's wives. I can't remember who published them, but they must have come out in the 60s or the 1960s or the 70s. And there was a set of six of them in a gold box, which, of course, to me as a child was just so perfect and fascinating. Um, and I think that was when I first read about Anne Boleyn and thought what an amazing character she was. And I think... I've come to appreciate most of the others for, for their different qualities, but nobody's ever going to, to beat her in terms of my on my heroine scale. Yeah, Anne Boleyn is definitely usually at most people's top of the list. But you and I do have something in common that we both like to write about the lesser known or lesser or less talked about characters of the Tudor era. Yes. Yeah. Let's talk briefly here about your first book. Maybe not even briefly, because I love this subject. (laughs) Your your first um, I think this is your first Tudor era book, The Phantom Tree. Am I right? Yes, that's right. Yes, it was. It was that was my first my first it was interesting actually because I I studied the Tudors um at university and I'd um read a lot about them but I'd never written about them before. So yes, the Phantom Tree was my first um uh, 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 interest in sort of going into that that particular topic. So uh, yes, and uh, and again a fascinating story. I think I'm particularly drawn to historical mysteries and want to explore them through fiction. Uh, And of course, that was what I did with that book. And so tell everybody the subject of the book and what inspired you to write on that subject? Okay, well, The Phantom Tree is uh, really the story of Mary Seymour, the uh, daughter of Queen Catherine Parr and Thomas Seymour. Um, And, well, I can't remember when I first started to be intrigued by the idea of what had happened to Mary Seymour because of course in the historical record she disappears totally from the record as a child and nobody knows what happened to her and I mean that is really the most perfect mystery for an author because um, in in the gaps between the the, the historical facts and the record your imagination can sort of flourish so um, the Phantom Tree is uh, a, a reimagining of the life of Mary Seymour, what might have happened to her after the record stops and, and what might have happened in her life. Um, so, yes, I mean, I, I think there were several different things that came together for me that um, that appealed to me to, um, and, and, and I really felt I had to write that story. First, as I say, there was this fascination with knowing what might have happened to Mary or imagining what might have happened to Mary. And then also I'm very fortunate in that I live quite near Wolf Hall, the real Wolf Hall, um, and I've always been interested in local history and the local myths and legends around that. So, of course, there's a lot about the Seymour family around near where I live. Um, 
And all these things kind of came together in, in my mind. And I thought, right, well, I'll write a locally set book. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll be able to visit all of the places connected with the stories. I'll research the background of what really might have happened to Mary um, and come up with a reimagining of her life and her story. And if it were up to Agnes Strickland... Mary would have lived a long life right it was really sweet I thought how she she very Agnes Strickland gave that impression she really wanted Mary to have a happy ending didn't she um and it was uh I, I was quite touched by that because um you know I mean I suppose when you read about the, the facts about Mary's life, you know, and, and the fact that she lost her mother. Obviously, her mother died in out after childbirth, and then her father was executed when she was still a baby, and how she was unwanted by various people. That's pretty harsh, you know. The, the, the letter from the um, from the Duchess of Suffolk complaining to William Cecil about the cost of having to to raise this little orphan child, and 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 you just think, oh, that's awful. So I can completely understand where Agnes Strickland was coming from because. She thought, poor Mary, you know, we all wanted her to have a happy ending, really. And uh, and for, you know, to go against practically all the, the, the common sense and, and the proof to, to say, yes, she did. She went off and married, uh, what was it, uh, Agnes was suggesting, a courtier from the uh, from from the court of James I and, uh, you know, and, and founded a, a family that's still around in Northumberland. She'd got it all worked out, hadn't she? It just, it's, it's just that you can't really, you can't really prove any of it. But uh, but that's so often the way. But I just thought it was, I thought it was very nice that, that it came across very strongly that um, everybody wanted Mary to be happy because she'd had such a rotten time. So there. <laughs> but as we know, the reality probably is that she died young, and it it breaks my heart as someone who's been researching Thomas Seymour for quite a few years mm. now. Mm. I feel like when he wanted her to go um, with the Dowager Duchess of Suffolk, that he thought he was putting her into better hands than with his brother. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, it's it was probably it would would have felt like a, a good choice. Absolutely, a friend of her mother's, and um, and yes, I mean, given the very tricky relationship between the Seymour brothers, which is another fascinating subject, isn't it? Um, I think you know a, a, that's a pretty sound decision on his part, on the face of it. And yes, and and that that adds another layer of sadness, I think, to this this whole sense of Mary just being part around a bit like an unwanted parcel and you know who's going to have to pay to to it felt as though nobody cared about her as, as an individual or or a baby even it was all about well she's very expensive or or we don't want her here and and, and the, you know the same with her mother's relatives you know it, it felt as though basically nobody nobody wanted her and that if she did die young then actually that that would have been a relief and, and uh, to, to a lot of people that they didn't need to worry about that anymore which is such a very sad thing they were also worried about having the money to raise her mm. you know oh i would take her but i need that money <laughs> yeah, you know <laughs> absolutely yes you, you give give me all of this and 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 of course i mean that that was the, the trouble wasn't it that was what the dowager duchess of suffolk was saying you know in order to pay for all of these people in her retinue and all the rest of it i i've spent this fortune on it and nobody's giving me any money and i suppose she's got a point hasn't she i mean she was an expensive baby whenever i do a talk about uh, when i do 
uh, talk about the, the background research for for the phantom tree i always i always uh, say that because of course she had being the child she was of course with such prominent parents she it was clearly felt she couldn't just be raised sort of fairly quietly and and cheaply. <laughs> she had to have all this. She had to have this retinue and these cows to to give her special milk and all the rest of it. Um, so uh, so yes, she was never going to come cheaply, was she? And that would be a burden for a lot of people. It always makes me wonder: had Thomas Seymour not been executed, I'm wondering if he, you know. I love Thomas. I'm not naive. I'm not naive to the things that he may have done, but I also believe there are things that he was accused of that he didn't do, but that's a whole nother story. Absolutely. Um, But had he lived, um, I I get a feeling that he probably would have kept her close since she was the daughter of a queen or I don't know. What are your thoughts on Mm. that? Yes, I think you're absolutely right on that because I think when had the feeling based on the way the way he wrote as soon as he had the the child having um having assumed it was going to be a boy he then did seem very pleased to have a daughter and so you have that first sense that he was it, it felt almost miraculous to him my goodness i've got this lovely baby girl kind of thing and so from a purely personal uh, point of view i think he would have kept her close anyway but of course knowing thomas as 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 we do um he would also have seen the great benefit of the fact that she was the, the daughter of the, the the former queen as well uh, so there would have been a, a, a double reason there i think why he why he would have kept her close i think that's absolutely right and yes things would have been so very different couldn't they it really, there's a, another subject for a book. <laughs> yes, yes, that would be very interesting to write the alternative history of, well, both from Thomas's point of view and also from Mary's. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, let's move on to your new book, um, which is going to be out in April, yeah. and it's called The Forgotten Sister. And I, th- if I remember correctly, it's based in the early Elizabethan period, right? Yes, that's right. It, it well, it actually starts. Um, it, it starts all the way back uh, just before um, the death of Henry VIII, when um, Edward succeeds to the throne. So, because it's looking at the early life of Robert Dudley and of Amy Robsart, it, it begins sort of back back before, but then focuses uh, on the first few years of Elizabeth's reign. What can the readers expect from this book? Again, I think it's um, it's a it's a dual time story first of all. So there's a, a thread that takes place in um, that Tudor period, uh, but also a modern day story. So it's basically again, um, I was fascinated by the mystery, as so many of us are, of of the death of of Amy Robsart. Um, and I wanted to look at, a, again, a reimagining of that story, um, but looking at it as a historical mystery that's solved in the present. Um, so that there are the two stories that run parallel to each other. So they have uh, the modern day story has similarities to the uh, to what happened in, in the Tudor story. But um, but it's but it's similar but different. I don't want to give too many uh, spoilers. So uh, yes, but but that is what it is. It's it's looking at Amy's story again. I mean, another of the themes that I really enjoy in my writing is looking at um, women who ha- have maybe been treated as a footnote to somebody else's history, usually a man's history. Obviously, in the case of Robert Dudley. 
and trying to explore their life and their character and say a bit more, tell the story from their point of view, really. So this is this is quite strongly from Amy's point of view. How well do you think you got to know Amy during your research? Um, yes, well, I, did, I spent a lot of time um, trying to trying to get to know her, I think. And it was interesting because, of course, I mean, we've uh, we've we've all come across this so often. She's the footnote. She's the 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 person who's referred to either from the perspective of Robert or just as an add on to his story. So actually finding the real Amy behind all of that is is quite difficult. She's quite elusive. But I did feel as though I was um I was getting, I went through the, the uh, for example, I went through the household records, uh, Robert Dudley's um, house, household accounts and looked at, at, at things like where she was at a particular time and um, what money was being spent. And obviously it only gives, it doesn't give a full picture, but it, it kind of helps, helps fill it out and fill out the gaps. Um, I certainly felt as though I, I got to know her and hopefully I was able to, put across her her character and and her situation really quite strongly in, in the book because I mean she was in a particularly difficult one could say probably intolerable situation towards the end of her life um, and so I was very interested in looking at the effect that that might have on the character of somebody who was in that position. And you're so right to say that she is one of those overlooked characters, because to be honest, I really don't know much about her life other than what came out after she had died. Mm. Uh, what can you tell us maybe about her her upbringing or her childhood? What was her family life like? Yeah, so she was actually the only daughter um, of Sir John Robsart and, um, and his wife, um, but he he had had an illegitimate son, Arthur, who's also in the story. Um, and then he had married a widow who had step siblings. So she grew up with a kind of a, a a very a very modern type of family, really, a sort of a mixture of all of the different uh, of the different um, uh, children. Uh, she was the youngest. Um, and I mean, one of the things that really interested me was that she um, grew up in Norfolk, of course, and the background, one of the sort of quite strong influences when she was in her teens was uh, Robert Kett's rebellion in Norfolk. Um, and so some of her brothers were involved in that. Um, and, and so there was this kind of background of conflict. She was a, she was aware of what would happen when there was a rebellion against the crown um, and, and what it was like to have family who'd been drawn into that. Um, her father was actually a very prominent gentleman in Norfolk, so he was quite influential, but obviously she was nowhere near the sort of social, the the, the, the dizzy heights of, of, the, of, of somebody, well, the Dudley family had kind of gone up and down in terms of their fortune, hadn't they? But um, it was considered an exceptionally good match for her to be marrying Robert Dudley. Um, so that that was that was the kind of the background to it, and and very um, for me, it's sort of uh, really interesting exploring the sort of marriages that her sisters made into the local gentry and the things that the that her brothers became involved with, um, because it was further down the social scale. But but it was important enough to. Um, to, to, to Robert Dudley's father that he should keep Sir John Robsart on side um, supporting him. So, uh, you know, so he's clearly a, a man of quite a, quite a bit of an importance. And, of course, Amy was his only legitimate 
child and his only daughter so she was again quite important to him so there was all of this in in the background it was hard to get a, a handle on anything like um what sort of education she would have received but i did have the feeling that because her father was um had quite a strong interest in his estates and in the the, the product of that in the in the farming and, and making money out of it she also had uh, learned the value of that and again i think i bring that out in the in, in um, the forgotten sister when she's asking well you know uh, We've, we've just inherited all, all my estates from, from my father. Why can't I have more of an active role in managing those estates? That kind of thing, something that she could have put her interests into. So, yeah, she had, a, she had a really quite a complicated and an interesting background, I think. I'm curious now, what's the connection um, between the Robsarts and the Dudleys that the marriage between Amy and Robert happened? How, how did they know each other? Well, I think the... the, the the interesting thing about that, of course, is that it's always portrayed as, um, oh, they met and fell in love and Robert insisted on marrying Amy because she was said to be very beautiful. Quite a few of the um, of the people writing at the time who actually commented on it um, said, you know, what a beautiful girl she was. And so it was portrayed as being a love match and sort of a, a bit of a, a kind of, you know, they... they 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 were very keen to get married and there was some opposition to it which i'm not sure is actually the case they did they did actually meet when um when robert dudley came as as part of the army to put down the rebellion the uh, uh, kept's rebellion so um and, and of course sir john robsart was was supporting the crown so so um he offered hospitality at his estates in norfolk and that was how apparently how amy and robert first met each other and as i say it was kind of based on that idea that it was oh you know we, they took one look at each other and fell madly in love and robert decided in that impetuous way he had that he was going to marry amy but actually i think it, it was a far more hard-headed decision on the parts of the fathers because as as i mentioned sir john robsart was an influential and important landowner in that part of norfolk it was a part of the country that the the king wanted to sort of extend his his influence over it was a considered an unruly part of of england the uh, east anglia and so they were looking to establish stronger royal control there so sir john was seen as a strong ally so a marriage between um between robert and amy would obviously put robert into a position where he could then start to take up posts in that county and exert his influence in in norfolk and suffolk and ease him into there as somebody who could uh, who could then become another influential landowner in that area so i don't believe it was at, at all simply based on uh, that sort of moment when they when their eyes met and they fell in love i think there was a lot of um, there, there was a lot of maneuvering behind the scenes as well that made it a good match yeah, we always you know, we always look for those love stories. We want we want that you know love at first sight, and they went against yes. all odds. And yeah, you I, know, I think there might have, there might have been an element of that um, in the in their story as well at the beginning. And I think that's very interesting because certainly, um, I mean, from everything that I've heard, and also if if the um, if the the ones portrait that we have which is said to be of amy if that is really of her it is a very pretty portrait she was obviously a very pretty girl people did comment on that you can see how that might have happened because obviously uh, they were both 
they were both fairly young at the time that they got married. So it, it could quite easily have been quite a sweet romance, really. Um, and then it had the extra benefit that uh, that it did bring this sort of the, the, this alliance that was very useful as well. So so um, I, I I don't rule out totally the the idea that there might have been something a bit a bit romantic about it. But I think I think you're right. I think there's always we want we want that to be true. Uh, but of course, if it was in the case of Amy and Robert, then it makes what happened later even more sad. Really. Really, that he should fall out of love with her when he was presented with a, a far more dazzling prospect in the shape of Elizabeth. Yeah, it does. It's it is heartbreaking to wonder what Amy went through, how she felt with Robert being Elizabeth's favorite. You can't help but feel for her. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, she she had no power, and and this was this was something that I was quite interested in exploring in the book if you were essentially in that situation and you were powerless and your husband was dancing attendance on another woman at court and he was saying well you're going to live here and moving you around the country from various places that were owned by his cronies and just keeping you out of the way what could you do to um to kind of to get some power back for yourself to turn the situation to your advantage to escape from that and, and find a way out and that was really um what i was looking at in in uh, in the forgotten sister uh, uh, coming up with a, a way that amy could have rather than just sitting there feeling sorry about it because i think a lot of us would get really annoyed and want to do something it's human nature not to not to think well I, you know i don't like being treated like this so i was kind of taking taking that view and thinking well a woman in that situation at that time what resources could she have? What could she do to change that? Uh, and I found that a very interesting way of looking at Amy's situation because so often she's she's been she's an, she's another of these characters. That's a slight tangent here, but um, one of the things I did read uh, when I was researching this was Kenilworth by um, Sir Walter Scott because, of course, that it, the plot of that is is about Robert Dudley. It's about Amy's death and uh, and it's about Elizabeth. And of course, the Victorian ideal of the of, of the, the beautiful uh, tragic heroine I mean Amy is completely powerless in that and treated terribly badly but of course you know she then comes across as a bit of a wet blanket and we want we want our heroines to have a bit more of something about them uh, so I thought well I don't want to write a story like that I want to show her as a rounded person who might think you know this isn't good enough I'm not going to be treated like this what can I do about it so that was the the my viewpoint I was taking when I was writing Amy's story I love that. I love being able to give them a voice, maybe a voice that they wish they had been able to have in their lifetime. Yes. I mean, I think that's it. We don't know, do we? I mean, when you look at the lives of women in Tudor England and indeed in other in other periods of history, um, there were those who were able to be strong and assert themselves and achieve certain things, either um people like Bess of Hardwick, but also through softer methods of of, of, of power. Um, so a lot of women were not entirely powerless, but of course we have to accept that they certainly couldn't behave in the way in the ways that they didn't have the freedoms and, and the, um, the, the 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 sort of way of behaving that we could do. But that's not to say that there weren't things that they could do. And I really, I mean that that idea appeals to me, and hopefully I think it does to to a, a lot of people who enjoy reading about these these people in history and, and want them to have a bit of agency. And remind me, I think Amy was relatively young when she died, wasn't she? 
Yes, she was. She was 28. So, uh, yes, I mean, it was also, and she'd been married for 10 years. And it, it was, yes, again, she you feel as though she hardly had time to get going in her life. And, of course, she was childless. And so that was another sort of uh, element, idea of a, a woman's purpose that she hadn't fulfilled. And so there were all these sort of all these things that, that, against her that, that, that kind of made her just really a, a cipher, a character that people didn't know very well, didn't know much about her. Um, so, yes, again, I wanted to fill that out a bit, how she would feel about that. And, um, yes, and, and the, the idea of the life cut short, the potential that, that was there that, that was not fulfilled, really. Without giving up the whole plot of your book, <laughs> uh, the question always remains, was she pushed or did she fall? Do you take a stance on this? Um Quite often when I write, well, nearly always, I should say, when I write historical mysteries, the stance I take um, as a as a as an author and the stance I believe in as a historian are different from each other. So for the sake of it, uh, and it's and it's a real conflict for me, actually. I mean, I think this is maybe one of the drawbacks of being a trained historian when you're writing historical fiction, uh, because you want you want to be able to let your imagination uh, roam and obviously to come up with a really good story. Uh, but the historian in me says that on the balance of everything, I think she fell. Um, but that's not necessarily the story that you're getting in the book. I love it. (laughs) It's just such a great mystery. And like you said earlier, you know, you're attracted to the mysteries. I'm exactly the same. There's something about being able to go back and pull up these old documents and look at them, maybe from a different perspective and, you know, have your own take on what you believe could have happened. Absolutely, because, I mean, in the end, uh, that's the fascinating, one of the many fascinating things about history, isn't it? Because it's open to interpretation. We can't go back and be certain what happened in any of these situations or even or talk to the people or even understand necessarily from what they've written or said exactly what they meant. We have to, we're always interpreting a historian, looking at factual information and, and documentary evidence is always coming out with what they think is the most likely um, answer to to whatever their question is. So, yes, and of course, fiction really is it, it is similar. It just leaves more space um, for the imagination. But I think that's the appeal of historical mysteries: is it allow they allow us to come up with our own um, solutions to these things. And of course, in, and and on that basis, you really wouldn't ever want the mystery to be solved because then you'd lose something then in that. I think, wouldn't you? It's it's the the, the enjoyment and the sort of. The, the stimulation of it is in exploring the, the possibilities. Um, I certainly would never want to know what the real answers to these things were, I think, because that would spoil it. Yeah, it would lose their appeal. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so The Forgotten Sister is out in April. Is it already out in the UK? No, it's out in April in the UK, and it's coming out later in the year in North America. Well, I guess we're going to have to wait a little bit unless we want to order it online. Uh, then we can get it. Just a little bit. And of course, there is always the the phantom tree for anybody who'd like a different dose of Tudor history in the meantime. 
I will be buying the Phantom Tree. I am so <laughs> looking forward to reading that one now after after all the research into the Seymour family and the curiosity that surrounds the the um, future of Mary Seymour. Mm. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. So now we get to the part of the show where I ask the five questions and I've changed them up a little bit for you. So uh, I'm going to keep you on your toes. <laughs> right. <laughs> so my first question as a writer, how do you decide on the topic of your next book? That's uh, it's a bit of a mystery. I have to be honest. I've got maybe four or five different ideas and I play around with them and see which one appeals or which jumps out. Um, often it's not the one I'm expecting. Um, that said, of course, it also depends on my publisher and they love Tudor stories. So um, so anything with a Tudor mystery in it is okay by them. Whatever inspires you, right? You have to have that inspiration. You can't force yourself to write something. I've never been able to, to do that. Um, I have tried sometimes, but um, no, I think it, 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 as I say, I mean, at the moment I've just finished, I've just finished um, a manuscript and I'm thinking about what I'm going to be writing next. So I've got maybe four different ideas. They've all got elements that appeal to me and I'm just waiting for one of them to, to come through more strongly than the other. It's, uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a very planned writer. In fact, I'm not a planned writer at all. Uh, it, it's, it, is, it is all down to instinct and, and, like you say, whatever puts it hand, its hand up most strongly and says, write me next. What does your writing process look like? Oh, well, it's funny you should ask me that because I have just, as I say, come out of writing my most recent manuscript and, and the, the process for that was was very painful for everybody concerned. I, I don't, I mean, I start off, um, I usually start off doing my research ahead of the book once I've decided what it is I'm writing about um, before I start writing so that I feel confident of the framework that I'm writing in, that it's going to be authentic and, and, and strong. Um, and then I'll start writing and obviously keep on researching as I go along because there's bound to be lots of things um, that I do. I do try to write regularly. Um, I don't plan, so I don't have huge um, pieces of paper stuck all over the walls with, with timelines and, and other things on it. Um, which I should do, really, because when you're writing dual time, it can get very, very complicated and mathematical, and I'm uh, and I'm I'm not very good at, at planning, so I can get myself into a bit of a knot. Um, but yes, the last book was just terribly <laughs> difficult to write, uh, and I must have spent about eight months thinking about it and making very slow progress, and then suddenly writing very, very fast at the end, um, which never happens to me normally. Uh, so I, I'm not sure it can be dignified with, with that word sometimes. I just have to fly into the, into, the, um, into the distance and hope for the best, I think. Well, now I'm curious, have you ever written a first, first draft of a book and been unsatisfied with it and shelved it? Uh, yes, I have done that. And in fact, this particular book that I've just written, which is um, around the historical mystery of the princes in the tower, so that's my that's my next book after the Forgotten Ooh. Sister. Um, that I I must have written about. I've started writing a particular angle on that. 
and then I scrapped it completely. Um, so I must have written about 250,000 words there that just never will see the light of day, unfortunately, which is probably another reason why it took me so long to sort out what I was doing. Um, in, that, in that instance, I think it was simply because the subject matter was so complicated and so difficult and also so personal to, to me and my interest in history um, that it was just very, very hard to write. But yes, unfortunately, I, I do... I hate having to scrap things um, because it feels like a terrible waste. But I think you do sometimes. If it doesn't feel right, then it has to go. I asked this question because <laughs> I am struggling with this right now. I'm I, I'm on my second draft of my, my first novel. Right. And I love where the story has gone. I love bits and pieces of it. But when I go back and read through it, I go, I just, I don't know if it's right. And I, my heritage, I'm German. So I'm mm. very stubborn and, <laughs> and I, and I can't, it, it kills me to, mm. to even think about shelving it because mm. I, I, I feel like it has to be finished, but I don't want to finish a bad book. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. That is so difficult, isn't it? And I do feel for you because, yes, it, it, you put so much work and so much heart into a project that you you don't want to, A, not finish it and, B, just put it aside. I mean, I think sometimes I, I critiqued manuscripts and, and, and things as, as part, uh, part of my career, and I think sometimes I just say to people, put it aside for a bit or look at the bit of it that you're not happy with because there's bound to be something in there that you can work with and change maybe just a little Um but, uh, yeah, it's a really tough one, that, isn't it? Oh, best of luck with it. <laughs> I don't want you to put it aside either. <laughs> I know. That's, it's the frustrating. And you have written so many books. How many are you up to, 30? I stopped counting after 30. <laughs> I mean, I have been writing for over 20 years now. I'm very fortunate that I've been published for over 20 years. But that said, I've only written four uh, of these um, historical dual-time mysteries. Um, and uh, and that they're, they're, they're very, very hard. I find it very, very difficult. Uh, so, uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure how long I can keep going doing this. But, but yeah, it's it's hard work. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, anybody who thinks writing a book is easy is mm. delusional. Yes, absolutely <laughs> they are. They have no idea. <laughs> well, my next question, this is one of my favorite ones that I ask all of my guests, is if I were to give you a time machine and you could safely travel back in time and return, where would you go? Mm. Well, um, it used to be that I would I wanted to um, go to the Tower of London and find out what happened to the princes in the Tower. But true to my uh, what I was just saying about not wanting to know the answers to historical mysteries, I probably wouldn't choose to do that anymore um, because I might be very disappointed when I found out the answer to that one. <laughs> um, so what I would do is I work as a uh, I, I work as a guide and a researcher for the for the National Trust in England at a seventeenth century. Um, stately home. So what I would absolutely love to do is to go back in time to the to a moment when that house was at its height of popularity, when it belonged to the uh, to the Craven family, when they lived there, and uh, just to see what life was like there in the time. Because obviously I take people around the house, I tell them about the family and about their lifestyle and all the things that happened there, but just to experience that for myself and hopefully not find that I was completely wrong about it would be the most amazing experience. If we could just be a fly on the wall. Mm, yes, indeed. 
<laughs> well, out of curiosity, Nicola, when you are reading for pleasure, what do you like to read? Mm. I do enjoy reading historical fiction still. It was my first love and I do still I do still read that. I read a lot of crime and I think um, that might account for the uh, interests that I had sort of uh, have in putting crime elements into my into my own books as well. So um and I particularly read that when I'm reading, if I'm writing, which is almost all the time, and I'm reading for pleasure in between, I won't read um, dual time books or historical fiction um, when I'm writing for, for fear of sort of that idea of, of um, accidentally sort of picking up things from other people's books. So I'll always read crime books when I'm writing. But in between, I love reading um, dual time books. Again, um, A Traveller in Time by Alison Utley was one of my first, um, my first loves when I when I started reading historical fiction. Um, I love reading Barbara Erskine's books, um, Susanna Kersley's books, and um, and a great uh, a friend of mine, Christina Courtney, who writes dual time uh, Viking books. So um, so those are those are really really interesting. So anything like that, really though, um, and definitely. Uh, straight historical fiction as I say my first love and I think it'll always be it'll always be that close to my heart I love historical fiction as well and I always tell people it was historical fiction that got me so interested in the Tudors where I went oh well these are interesting stories now I want to learn more and I always hope that they do that for other people as well absolutely I mean the um yes so did you read uh, I I mean, I was a I was a Jean Plady girl, so that was what got me into the Tudors and um, um, and the various authors like that. But um, yeah. and and I think that's exactly what. Um, funnily enough, I was just reading a an interview with Hilary Mantel about her about her Tudor trilogy, and that's exactly what she said as well. She said um, she you know I know that story and I want more of it, and I think that's what we all feel when we read about Tudor history and what we all hope as well when uh, when we write about it, that people will identify with that story. They'll know about the background and they'll think, this is great. I want to know more about this. Well, now my last question for you is what might people be surprised to learn about you? Oh, about me personally. Um, <laughs> that's a very good question. Uh, well, I don't know whether it would be surprising, but um, I have a, I, I do have another um, a, another activity that I'm involved which it, in, which is completely different from writing, which is that I train assistance dogs, um, guide dog, guide dog puppies for the blind. So, um, so that when I'm not writing and when I'm not working at Ashdown House, I'm out. Um, it's good actually because it gets me away from my desk and out meeting people and I love dogs. So what could be better than, um, than training than training puppies to be the assistance dogs of the future? I love that. What a great service you provide for people. That's great. Well, Nicola, where can my listeners find you and your books? Uh, well, I am. Um, I have a, a, a website, um, www.nicolacornick.co.uk, and I'm on Twitter and Facebook. I love chatting to people who are interested in history and writing and those two things together, and indeed anything else, really. Uh, so please do find me at Nicola Cornick um, on Twitter um, and on Facebook as Nicola Cornick as well. Um, the books are all on Amazon um us and uk and um 
Yes, um, and hopefully the, uh, the the new one's going to be out in the UK and from the book depository, who of course do um, ship internationally as well next month. So, um, uh, but yes, the, the US edition of um, the Forgotten Sister is coming in the autumn, and it has an awesome cover, really, really stunning. So I'm very excited about that. Um, so yes, yeah, so that's where you can find me, and I look forward to chatting to everybody. And thank you. And if you are looking forward to purchasing one of Nicola's books, I will include the links um, on the um, subsequent article that goes with this so that you can just click and go over and make a purchase. Nicola, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. It's been fantastic uh, chatting to you about all things Tudor. Thank you so much. Thanks for checking out the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Read more. Read more on the blog at TudorsDynasty.com. Follow Tudor's Dynasty on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Tudor's Dynasty on iTunes. Thanks for listening.